0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from AndyHackers. and you are listening to the Andy Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Baird Hall, the founder of a company called Wave. Baird, welcome to the show.
1: Hey Corlin, thanks for having me. I'm a long-time listener, so this is fun to uh, be on the other side of it.
0: Yeah, it's fun to have you. I think one of my favorite things about the podcast nowadays is that Indie Hackers has been around for long enough that I can bring on guests like you, who were on the forum making posts and comments about getting started with your business, and apparently even listening to the podcast. And now you get to be on the podcast, and we could talk about how far you've come and how successful you've been. Uh, you started Wave, I think, way back in December 2016. How much revenue is, is Wave doing today? We just
1: passed the 76k MRR mark recently, and still having pretty good growth. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we started it, and um, we really launched it in January of 2017, and I
0: think that's about when I started showing up on the Indie Hackers uh, forums. Yeah, that was about seven months after I started Indie Hackers, and since then, you've also somehow found the time to start another business called Subtitle. Uh, how much revenue is that one doing?
1: I think we're at 34000 a month. Yeah, it seemed like a great idea at the time to start another Bootstrap SaaS business. And now it's great, but that first year of that one was uh, pretty tough, but we'll get into that later.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like it's, it's going well. I mean, $76, 34 that's $100,000 a month in revenue that you've, you've, you've basically added starting at zero three years ago. And of course, that's not all going into your pocket. You have expenses, you have co-founders, but I have to imagine that your life has changed quite a bit.
1: It's not a ton different. I think the biggest difference is the pressure's off a little bit. You know, that first year or two when you're getting started. And um that point, I was in the hole too from a failed startup that we can talk about. But now the bills are getting paid. There's definitely less pressure. But aside from that, not much has changed. I, I started, I think my original goal was to, you know, create a business that would let me kind of work part-time and make mm-hmm. full-time money so my wife and I could travel. We really love to do that. But then we wound up having a baby. I got a four-month-old at home. So it's funny that I've traded that freedom in for daddy daycare a couple of days a week.
0: So were you a founder before Wave and before this failed business? Or was this sort of your first foray into to starting companies? No, this was the
1: first. 2016, that first failed startup that we tried was my first go at it. Before that... In 2010, out of college, I worked for a big software company here in Charleston, South Carolina, where I live, big publicly traded company. And I did, I was like entry-level call center, tier one support, basically. So I did that for a year and a half. Then I moved to a startup in town and I was a sales engineer for four years. And that was a great experience. I think I was the ninth employee and I was there for a little over four years. And they hit 50 employees about the time that I left and decided to, to work on my own thing. So I was... I was lucky to be able to build sales and support skills before uh, jumping into taking a shot at it.
0: That's quite a journey from call center employee to sales to $100,000 a month in revenue as a tech founder. How did you make that transition from being an employee to being a founder?
1: At the time, I didn't know why I wanted to do it. I just had this gut feeling that I wanted to at some point try my own thing. And my wife and I had just got married in 2015, in January, January 2nd, 2015. And then mid-February, I told her I wanted to leave my job and start a company. And this was the first time she had heard anything of that so she gets a lot of thanks for sticking with me, especially through that first year too. She likes to joke that she's going to put Angel Investor on her LinkedIn profile uh, one day because she really helped me get through that first year and a half. But so anyway, I didn't know exactly why I wanted to do it. But looking back, I know that throughout my whole life, I've always been searching for some type of creative outlet, never been good at you know arts or music or anything like that. And I was always looking for a way to to create things. And it turns out that, you know, building companies is my outlet for that. And I don't think I'd really want to do anything else now.
0: Well, most people who aren't software engineers, when they think about building companies are like, I'm going to open a grocery store or a restaurant or something (laughs) in the physical world. What convinced you that tech companies were the way to go, especially considering that you couldn't code yourself?
1: I've been working in tech for five years. So that's kind of where my headspace was. And I had just been with this startup as they grew pretty fast over those four years. I got to see kind of a lot of the checkpoints um, that they hit very different It was a kind of a B2B enterprise business for nonprofits. I I guess my head was just in tech and I've always really enjoyed it. And the original idea was uh, I wanted to build an app that let I was a big, I'm a big sports radio fan. Well, now sports podcast, of course, but back then I was listening to a lot of sports radio. I was driving around in my sales job and I was so frustrated that I couldn't use my phone to talk to other listeners of the show, debate sports with them. So the original idea was to create an app that allowed callers or listeners of radio shows to actually kind of virtually call in with their one or two minute, uh, take and, uh, talk to other listeners. And I convinced my co-founder, Nick, uh, who's still my partner today to, to help build it. And it was just a rough go from a business standpoint. Great idea. We got a lot of listeners or got a lot of users and it was a lot of fun. And we learned a lot by making all the mistakes. But um, that was kind of the, the original starting point for me. You're making all the mistakes.
0: Tell us about a few of them.
1: The biggest one was just we thought a feature was cool. So we would build it. And we always thought that next feature was going to be the thing that's got us on the right track. And we would you know say oh man if we could build this integration or if we could just you know get social media integrated so it's easier for people to sign up like well that that'll set us on the right path i don't know if we've coined the term i don't think we have but it, it's basically like the feature fallacy that we kept chasing that and i feel nick my co-founder man he really put the work in to make that product the best he could but the problem wasn't the product it was just that there was no business behind it so we could never raise money and we tried so many different types of business models sponsorships subscriptions ads i mean everything and we just never could really model it out on paper but we could never actually get any positive traction for any of the revenue models we worked on that product from 2015 towards the end of 2016 and Spent my savings on. I probably put thirty grand of my save all my most of my savings into it, and Nick put all that time into it. Um, and we wound up selling it for parts, and yeah, you know, definitely was in the hole from all that. But it was a good experience of what not to do, and I was just stressed out all the time. There's just so much weight on my shoulders because it was so such a swing for the fences. Felt like we were kind of either hit a home run or strike out. And we learned during that time that we don't ever want to run a venture back business where you know, waiting on somebody to invest in your company, the next
0: milestone or next checkpoint that you have to hit. It's just really stressful. A lot of people start things and fail. I've been there about half a dozen times. What do you think was the, the hardest part of that stress and going through that failure and seeing your idea not work out the way that you planned?
1: You know, there were a lot of things, signs indicating that it was working. We had a lot of users that loved using it. and We had a lot of big ESPN and Fox Sports radio shows using the product but we just could never get anyone to pay for it. So on one hand, it was definitely a success just to build something and have somebody use it. I mean, how many people don't even make it that far? So we tried to be positive about it, but it was more tough running out of cash and looking back at all that time and effort that we put into it. It really just stung towards the tail end of that the most. And the lesson learned is you know, we should have realized a lot earlier that there wasn't a business to be had and we should have just kept it on the side as a, you know, fun side project.
0: Yeah, there's there's always got to be some story you tell yourself looking back as to why this was worth it. Why did you invest all that time? What did you get out of it? With some of the things I've started in the past that have not worked out, I can at least look back and say, "Well, I learned a ton." You know, I learned a lot about how to code. I became a better front-end and back-end developer, a better designer, better at sales. What do you think you took out of this failed experiment?
1: I think the biggest lesson we learned was we need to stop coming up with our own ideas and listen to the market and listen to what people want. That company was more B2C focused. We felt like all the pressure lied on us to come up with the ideas and try to manufacture growth on our own. We didn't, weren't doing a lot of listening, even from our users or from the kind of partners that were using the product. So, th- I mean, that was the big lesson is just once we made that shift of, okay, let's. Maybe our ideas aren't that great, but we can start with an idea and then start listening to what people think about it and follow down that road rather than feel like we're pushing something up a hill. That was definitely the biggest lesson. Uh, marketing to consumers is really tough. Definitely not for us, but I learned a lot just as far as how to promote things on social media and um, you know how to get in front of consumers, um, which we don't do a lot of now, but a lot of those principles, I think, still carry over to marketing in any respect.
0: So at this point, you've got one failed startup under your belt. You're officially an entrepreneur. A lot of people quit at this point in time. They're like, well, I just blew through my savings. That wasn't pleasant. I worked so hard. I put all this time into it. You know, Maybe I learned some lessons, but I don't really want to go through that again. It was nice and stable having a job. Why didn't you guys quit and just go get jobs?
1: The answer was kind of right in front of our faces. So towards the end of that failed startup, we were working on a marketing tactic of sharing audio content submitted by these users and putting it on social media. So the thought was, if we could actually share what these people are talking about on our platform, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, other people will hear it. They'll click the link, they'll download the app and come join in on the conversation. But we learned out really quickly that you can't actually put audio on social media you can't upload an MP3 file to Facebook. You have to turn it into a video file and then share it. So Nick, my co-founder, really like over a weekend built this really quick internal tool. He cobbled some existing tools together and built me a quick interface so that I could uh, create these MP4 videos and you know turning audio into MP4 videos. And we were just using it internally and sharing these videos on social media. And as we were realizing that we needed to um, sell that, failing company, we started getting emails from podcasters and other people. They were saying, hey, your app is not interesting, but how are you creating these little videos? (laughs) And the light bulb just kind of went off. We're like, oh, man, we are working on the wrong thing. This little tool that we built is actually more interesting to other people than the whole app platform. So I don't know what I would have done if we didn't have that realization those last few months. I guess I might have went and got a job, but at the same time we were selling, we sold the IP, like the code base and all the functionality. We sold that and that took about two, three months to actually get that sale completed. And while that was happening, we were kind of spinning out that internal tool as its own product.
0: Did the sale help you finance working on this other product? Because you'd blown through your savings at this point. How do you you find the time and the money to work on yet another startup when you've already been going for so long and things haven't worked out?
1: Yeah, so we sold the previous – we didn't sell the company. We sold all the IP for it for about $27,000. And after two years of two people working full-time on something, that was nothing. So – We did take that money and we started the new LLC and you know funded it with I think we both put a thousand bucks into the new LLC and we both instantly said okay well let's work on this new thing but we both had to go get freelance contracts Um, so there's a group here in Charleston that a group of freelancers that we worked with and just worked on a variety of projects uh, half the time to pay our bills and spent the
0: other half working on Wave. You know, I spent a lot of time freelancing in my 20s and I was making a considerable amount of money as a developer doing this remote contract work. And I always had these profitable side projects that I was trying to get off the ground, I was trying to make them work, but I never had the right level of motivation. I couldn't get enough momentum going to take them that seriously because when I compared how little money those were making to how much my hourly rate was as a freelancer, the math just didn't add up and I couldn't take it seriously until I just eventually quit freelancing how did you maintain the motivation to keep working on Wave when you were freelancing?
1: Yeah, we've, man, we felt the same way. It was tough to, valuing your time was very difficult at that point. What we did was our sites with Wave, we have absolutely never thought that it would get anywhere to the size that it has as far as recurring revenue goes. We, our initial goal with Wave was, we thought it would be really cool if we could get this business generating enough income for both of us to pay our mortgage which was about you know 1800 bucks, $1700. And that was our goal and we were just working to get it to that point and it just kind of kept growing each month a little bit by little bit and it, we've always had very linear month over month growth. It started at you know 40%, dropped down to 30 and then stayed at 20 for a really long time and Every month, we like, well, we can't stop working on it because it it keeps growing and that possibility is still there. When we first started, something else that was really important is we created, Nick uh, has much more of a finance mind than I do, and he, he created a lot of different models, right? Even before we decided to get into it, we really took our time much more seriously this go around. We said, look, if we're going to put time into this, we need to understand what it potentially could be. So we would model it out based on what we thought the price could be, based on how many users we could get, and you know, pretty simple uh, financial models. Um, but we created three different ones. We created kind of the minimum viable model, as in like if we made less than this, we're not even going to work on it anymore. But it was kind of that like, hey, let's pay our mortgages. And hey, here's the model of what that looks like. And then we created a a better case scenario and then the best case scenario, which we kind of kept in mind too. So we at least had an idea like, okay, this thing is going to fall somewhere on this spectrum between these two endpoints. And really anywhere in that, we're going to be happy with the result and at least try it and see what happens.
0: That's so smart because so many founders get stuck in this weird no man's land, this zone where... Ah, my company's not doing that great. Like maybe I should quit, but ah, it's got potential. I've got a few more things I could try and I can add. You know, maybe I should stick with it. And it's really hard to make that decision. And you can spend years of your life working on something that has no chance of working just because you haven't set any sort of defined cutoff point. You don't have any criteria for evaluating whether or not it's worth continuing to work on. Where it sounds like the two of you made that decision up front and you knew, you know, maybe if it goes this long without hitting this amount of revenue, we quit and move on to something else.
1: Yeah. And for us, quitting was never really a thought because we started making money really quickly with wave. Um, we, I mean, from like month two on, we were at least paying our AWS bill. So we knew right away, like this thing has some type of legs. We never didn't know exactly what. So it was less about quitting and more about like, Hey, is this a side gig or is this a full time? project. And right. that's what we really, uh, our goal has always been to build our own company that can support us full time. We're we're not interested in side gigs, but if the worst case scenario is this thing just kind of lives on its own and, you know, who knows, does whatever, then anything really in that mindset's a positive result. So I think that's where our head was. We never really thought about quitting and we are like, well, if this doesn't work, we'll just, you know, maybe it'll generate a couple hundred bucks a month and we'll try another one. So it felt very much low pressure and, just get to work on it and see what happens. Really revisit every quarter just about and kind of do a health check on the business, see how it's doing and make a decision on
0: whether or not to push forward or you know how much time to spend on it. So let's talk about these early days. When I think about starting a project or even just building a feature, what's going through my mind is how important it is to focus on the problem that I'm trying to solve. So what is the problem I'm solving Who are the people who have this problem? How frequently do they have this problem? How much do they care about it? How much time and money and energy are they already investing in solving this problem? Because all this stuff is going to completely dictate what your business looks like and how well it works. But I think this way, because I'm largely just very theoretical, I literally talk to founders and interview founders for a living, and the reality on the ground is usually a little bit more practical, a little bit messier. How were you wrapping your mind around the idea behind Wave in the early days and what made you confident that it was going to succeed before you started giving, getting revenue in the door?
1: Well, it was pretty clear early on because there were podcasters that we saw on social media when we were doing research and looking around. We saw podcasters already creating these videos, these style of videos. You've probably seen them on social media where uh, you know, it's a picture with an animated waveform and some text and some captions. And a lot of the you know, more prominent podcasters would have a video video, Coordinator of some type, somebody actually creating these videos in Adobe After Effects. So we were seeing podcasters were already doing this thing, but they were just doing it very, very manually. And for every one podcaster that has the resources to do that, there's a hundred more that want to get to that point. So we already we knew that there was at least some appetite for it in the market. We didn't exactly know how much. So just seeing those patterns, I think, is really important as an entrepreneur is making sure that you're actually. Looking out in the market and seeing something happening, because most of us bootstrappers are not creating some new category. Most of us are, you know, improving an existing one or and you know, uh, hooking into an existing market, something like that. So that was really important for us to make sure that people are doing this and that there's other people that want to do it as well. And we, early on, for me, it was it was just a lot of direct email and social media direct messages. Back then, you could. Message just about anybody, and we just reach out to podcasters. And uh, we also tried musicians, um, audiobook authors, journalists. Like, we tested some other markets because it seems obvious now, but back then, podcasting is not what it was today. Like, we knew it was growing, but we didn't know it was going to turn into this booming industry. So, we actually did some validation early on of like, okay, well, what different types of audio creators could use this? And um, we would just use direct outreach to. Yeah, you know, reach out to fifty podcasters, fifty musicians, fifty journalists, and kind of see what happens. And the podcasters just right away the reaction we would get through our emails and social media messages were far and beyond more positive than any other group that we tested.
0: I love that you said that you were looking out at the market, you're looking at what people were doing, you're sending these emails. A lot of indie hackers are solo founders and they're developers. I think it's easy for them to spend all their time just coding and building the product. And maybe they have this vague sense like, hey, I should probably be doing other things too. But I'm not really sure what those other things are, how to do them well. So I'm just going to keep coding and hopefully everything will just work out. And usually if you're thinking like that, things don't work out. Mm-hmm. But because you had a co-founder, Nick could focus on the code and the product and the financial modeling and whatever else he was doing. Uh, what kinds of things were you doing in those early days while he was coding the product? Were you just sending tons of emails to customers? Yeah,
1: lots and lots of outbound Communication, just emails and uh, social media messages mainly. And I was also doing some blogging, getting the content marketing engine going. But that takes time to generate results, and we knew we needed to get in front of people as quickly as possible. It was tough doing that. I mean, we our product started. The original package was seven dollars a month. So you know, sitting there all day, sending out fifty emails to podcasters for you know, hoping to get a seven dollar sales, pretty brutal. But That was really the only way we could have done it. We didn't have an audience. We didn't have any money. The only thing that we had was some time. And so that left direct marketing. I guess we could have done social media, but that's not a direct result either. So it was kind of the only option. And it was a great way to get in front of podcasters and learn... What resonates with them? What type of copy should we use? Um, Direct sales is a great way to test pricing as well because you can email 10 different people, 10 different prices, and uh, see what comes back. So it was definitely really beneficial. That's really what I spent most of my time doing. And then support as well. We had Drift installed on our website initially. And uh, anytime somebody came to the website and had a question, I was just ready to answer as soon as possible. Like that was somebody landing on our website and sending us a message was like gold to me and um, spent a lot of time chatting with people. I actually looked at our intercom. We put an in intercom in early 2018 and I was looking at our stats the other day and we've had over 10,000 conversations in the last wow. 24 months. I think it averages out to be like 14 a day or something like that. Um, back then, of course, we weren't getting that many, but we spent we just spent a lot of time just emailing and messaging people and then chatting with them when they came to the website and kind of learning on the fly.
0: I talked to Rob Fitzpatrick a few weeks ago. He also has a background in sales and he wrote a book called The Mom Test. That's all about how to talk to your customers as a founder and really get the truth out of them. Are there any truths that you learned from having all these customer conversations and interacting with people that you never would have guessed without having those conversations? We learned a lot about podcasters. I didn't know anything about, I've never podcasted in my life aside from you
1: know being a guest like this as of late. But um, so early on, it was just learning so much about podcasters, what their goals are, what their process is, uh, how much time they have. All of them have some other business or other thing going on. So, you know, Really early on, it was just learning so much uh, about podcasters and what they do. Yeah, I'd done sales before, so I kind of knew that process. I knew why people buy things, how to get people's attention. Um, I've kind of approached that already. So it was really more just learning about the market through that those early days.
0: So I'm, I'm on Indie Hackers right now. I'm looking at some of your old comments from three years ago, 2017. And you have one <laughs> that's explicitly about... Cold emailing people. Uh Uh, Because I was talking about cold emailing. I did the same thing with indie hackers to find my first interviewees. Uh, Unfortunately, I wasn't making any money from them. (laughs) I was just doing free interviews. But in your comment, you actually gave some tips for how to make cold emails work. So you said that instead of scraping large lists for sending out email blasts, you would instead spend your time researching prospects that fit into a specific persona that you were targeting. And then you would personalize each email and you made sure to not come across as salesy. And you said that you sent 10 to 30 cold emails a day until you had your first dozen or so customers, which took two weeks. I think a lot of people try this cold email strategy and they don't have that kind of success. What additional tips would you give to people who are struggling with this?
1: Yeah, the first step is researching. A good salesperson spends time researching who they're going to reach out to. That's why we hate salespeople so much. And especially that's why we hate cold email salespeople, because they just buy a list that you happen to be on and you get this... Very boilerplate email that is very salesy because they pitch their company, they you know say something that tries to be personable and then they try to actually sell you all in one big email and that is not the way to do it. <laughs> so if you're sk- worried about doing direct sales because you don't want to feel slimy and sleazy, don't worry because that is not you don't have to do it that way and it's not the right way to do it. So the first thing is even if you're selling a seven dollar product like we did. Take the time to do research and have a reason to reach out to somebody. And they're going to appreciate it. Your life is going to be a lot easier if you take that extra time and do it. And you're going to have a better response rate as well. The big piece of advice I would give to people that are nervous about doing sales is you have to understand that, yes, people hate being sold to. We all do. Even salespeople hate being sold to. But at the same time, people love being like attended to and cared for. And there's nothing better than somebody else solving problems for you authentically. Like that's what we all want. We all want to interact with people, and we love that idea of like being helped. So if you can approach sales authentically like that, it's much less intimidating because you're not coming in as that like sleazy salesman that kind of you know gets a bad rap because that's the way most people. and, And really, it's more the bad rap comes from lazy salespeople. They don't want to do the research. You know, they want to send out a thousand emails, get a couple sales, and move on. So that's the other big advice I would get. And then the thing that kills me with cold emails, oh my gosh, is the length of them. Like They really should be one or two sentences long. You really shouldn't be sending a cold sales email. What you should be doing is sending an email to somebody and all you're trying to do is get permission to have a conversation. So if I was going to try and sell you with Wave, I'm not emailing you about our pricing tier and our features and how they work. I'm just sending you an email that says, Hey, Cortland, like I love the podcast. Um, I love what you're doing for the indie hacker community. Uh, You know, what are you doing to promote your podcast on social media and keep it really short. And if you, if you don't get a response, that means Cortland doesn't care about social media. Fine. Well then it's not going to be a, I can't help you. But if you do get a response, you're getting permission to start a conversation and I don't know, that just seems a lot more friendly and easy and, rather than you know trying to sell somebody in one email.
0: I love that. And I would definitely respond to that email if you'd send it to me because at that point, we're just talking about podcasting and why wouldn't I want to do that?
1: Yeah, and something else that gives salespeople a bad rap is a lot of them are stressed to hit their next number, right? So they're forcing it, they're pushing, they're pushing if you approach sales as like I'm not forcing anything and the great thing about being an entrepreneur is you're usually selling something new that's novel. And if somebody needs it, they're gonna tell you pretty quickly. And if they don't need it, you've got a huge, massive market to move on to. There's a lot of prospects out there. So you don't have to force it with people. You just, you know, if they don't seem interested, then just move on to the next one, learn from each conversation. So I know why people are intimidated by just direct sales in general. But hopefully those things can kind of help lessen the intimidation factor there.
0: I want to add one thing that I think is cool about your story that a lot of people struggle with, which is that you kind of knew who your customer was. You were talking to people, you honed in on the fact that podcasters really like this as opposed to other people doing audio. And because you could really describe who they are, these are podcasters, you know where to find them. And so many people start a company where they don't have a clearly defined customer. They don't know who they're selling to. And so they can't even do this because they have no idea who to email.
1: I think the old adage goes, if you're selling or marketing to everybody, then you're not selling to anybody. You just, it doesn't work that way. You have to really know who your customer is. And we actually niched down a lot farther than just that. Podcasting was a pretty big space in itself. And we said, well, we can't, we're not just going to blast any podcaster. Let's actually start with podcasters that are using their podcasts to promote their business. That way we're at least like getting a little bit of a B2B element. And when we started doing that, we found that consultants, uh, business coaches, uh, people with a personal brand, uh, bloggers, and influencers that are using a podcast to like sell products through their website, those people really were incentivized to promote their podcast because it you know helped their whole uh, process of uh, their whole business. So we found initially that that was our group to start with, and I would say that I mean those people made up the majority of our first hundred customers. Like those first ten are brutal to get. And then when we found out that that niche really was receptive to uh, new marketing strategies and would use a product like ours, that made the next, you know, 50 customers or so a little bit easier.
0: What does your life look like in terms of the hours you were working at this point? Because you're freelancing, you're sending all these emails, you're discovering all these insights about customers. How do you find the time for all this stuff?
1: I was freelancing maybe three to four hours a day, I think, two to three hours. I think I made like 30 grand freelancing that first year. So it wasn't much. I wasn't working a ton, but my wife and I were living in an apartment and she would leave for work. She worked for a tech company downtown. And I just sit at the kitchen table and send out emails and take support calls all day. It was pretty much it. Take a break to go work out and hang with my wife for a little bit. And then when she goes to bed early and I usually stay up late and night is kind of when we would think about like, okay, what do we need to work on product wise? That is kind of when Nick is in his um, creative engineering mode. But those days were very, very monotonous. And it definitely felt like it's not too much of a grind because you're just sitting there at your laptop all day. But mentally, it was definitely tough to to stay disciplined and constant with that.
0: Yeah. Especially if you're selling a product that's like, Five, six, $7 a month. <laughs> you're not making that much money <laughs> when you're getting we're those customers. a
1: seven We're selling a $7 product and like having to
0: discount it every now and then. <laughs> oh man. How long did it take you to actually get to the point where you could start making real money and eventually quit your job and stop freelancing?
1: Um, it wasn't until the next year. So we started that in 2017. I freelanced all of 2017. And then 2018, I can't remember exactly what MRR number we were at, but it was still growing. And that's kind of when it started clicking like, oh, wait a second, we might be able to push this thing a little bit farther and and work on it more full time. And I took on a big freelancing contract the first quarter of 2018. And that was a really heavy contract. And that was tough because Wave is actually starting to take off a little bit. And then I was working pretty much full time, but that was just for a quarter. And then at the end of that, I had saved up enough and Wave was starting to pay us a little bit. But so I guess it was probably 15 months after
0: we launched Wave that I actually started focusing on it full time. Was that 15 months of just nothing but sending cold emails? Or did you find a different strategy that was a little bit less monotonous (laughs) at some point?
1: (laughs) No, I'd say the first six months was really, really heavy outbound. And then... Through that process, we really started understanding who our customers were, what got their attention. And then we moved to content marketing. We started blogging. For us, it took about eight months for blogging to uh, really start seeing some good results and start getting some some traffic from SEO. Uh, we had been doing social media too. So it was uh, definitely very much a snowball effect. I've written a blog post every week. I mean, not every week, but that was the goal pretty much consistently. One a week since we launched, so we got up an, enough content library to where it all started coming inbound, and we stopped doing outbound probably after eight months.
0: If you could go back in time to yourself as a fledgling blogger who was just getting started, what would you what would you tell him to help him sort of skip a few steps ahead and blog effectively?
1: That's a good question. I don't think I'm the best blogger out there. I just keep it really simple. I just try to put myself in the shoes of my target customer and ask. What are the things throughout the day that they're googling for? So for podcasters, it was you know how do I grow my show? How do I promote my show on Facebook? It was a lot of how-to articles early on. those are kind of the easiest ways to get started. And then once we kind of exhausted all of those how to's uh, across all the different social platforms and and things like that, we kind of gravitated towards more podcasts. I don't want to call it thought leadership, but just podcast podcasting strategies. So how to interview people, how to, you know, make sure that you're editing properly, what tools to use, things like that. But content marketing is kind of a black hole where you can go as deep as you want with you know keyword strategies and just you know making sure your content is formed in all these perfect ways. But I would say just keep it simple, write short articles and just Trying to think about how you can help educate your audience. And it takes a lot of time. So, you know, one article generally isn't going to make or break your blogging success. So you just have to stay consistent. And I don't know if six months is a typical like advice that people would give, but that's what it was for us. That's how long it took.
0: So, at some point during this whole journey, uh, you decided that one business wasn't enough. You weren't just going to stick with Wave, even though, even though it was growing, things were working out. You decided to start a second business called Subtitle. Why did you start that? What's the story there?
1: Subtitle is another example of a business kind of spawning from another. So with Wave, we had always had customers asking us if they, a big feature request was always, how do I add subtitles or captions to my videos? And every time that we evaluated that project from an engineering standpoint and the ongoing cost of it, we pushed it off and we kept punting on it because it was going to be a lot of work to integrate that and uh, just to get the UI working properly. And we kept punting it, kept punting it. And it was definitely our number one feature request. And that was painful too, by the way, just saying no to a feature because we didn't think the ROI was there, even though that's what people really wanted. People were still signing up and using our product without that feature. It was just something they wanted added on badly. So the idea was... Well, if we create this video captioning tool for our product, it could actually work with any video, not just audio turned into video that Wave creates. So why don't we create this as a separate product and just integrate it into Wave? Mm. That way we can sell to people that are recording actual video footage and then uh, just integrate it with Wave and upsell customers there. So that was the original thought. And I was naive enough to think like, oh, this will be so easy. We're just going to launch it. You know, I'll do all the same marketing. We'll do some direct outreach. We'll do some content marketing. We'll do the same pricing strategy. And, you know, this will be no problem. And we launched that in 2018. And we just paid ourselves for the first time in January of 2020. So that took two years as well to make any money personally from it. That one was almost just as long of a road, but that was why we did it. And it turned out to be the right call because it's a totally separate market that Zubtitle serves. And it integrates with Wave and powers that for all the Wave users.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask where you got the, the confidence to switch into this new business and did you feel like you were giving up on your old business, but you had that kind of naive founder optimism where you're just so sure things are going to work and you have this rosy <laughs> picture of how it's all going to work. And it, I think yeah. sometimes you need that to propel yourself into what ends up being a pretty slow and painful process. You have to be kind of unrealistic yeah. to convince yourself to go through with it.
1: Yeah, I was lucky at the time because I had been full time with Wave for six months or so. And, you know, Wave, it was starting to run itself to some degree. It's still, obviously, we work on it every day, but we've really built it to be as automated as possible. So I had a little time opened up. I was used to freelancing anyway with that other half of my day, so I was kind of ready to take on a new project.
0: So there's this book called Traction, written by Justin Mayers, who's been a a guest on this podcast before, and Gabriel Weinberg. Yeah, it's all about the different channels you can use to find customers and grow your business. So there's sales and email and advertising, blogging, SEO. I think there's something like 19 channels in there. What would you say were the most successful channels for you later on as Wave continued to grow? Was it always just SEO? And I know you stopped doing the sort of direct email outreach. What else worked?
1: Well, I think the biggest benefit that we had with Wave was that users were creating content that they would then share on social media. And what we found out early on with Wave customers is... A lot of them were buying originally just because that first set of customers was buying just because they were already creating these videos very manually and they wanted a faster way to do it. But the more we talked to people and the more we talked to people that weren't doing it, podcasters before buying Wave would tell us like, I just want to look like, Gary V, or I want to look like, you know, insert very, very popular podcaster. And we learned that they really cared about the appearance of their podcast mm. on social media because, you know, it's uh, definitely like they're looking at their peers a lot and they want to stand out and separate themselves from the crowd. Right. So one thing that we've always done early on is really focused on sharp, good looking animations and uh, making sure the elements of the video are very pleasing to the eye. So that when they share it on social media, they'll feel very proud about it. It's really tapping into that emotion of, you know, being proud of what you're sharing. And that's why a lot of customers love Wave. And uh, we brought a third partner on named Rob, who's a really sharp engineer. And he was actually our kind of the specialist on the animation side. And he created all of these custom animations from scratch and people would see those on social media and ask the person that posted it, like hey how'd you do that and they would share wave and that was really when things started taking off is when we created those really good looking animations and word of mouth marketing started to kick in and that was i mean that's been the best advantage that we've had as far as our growth goes sure content marketing is great and we've launched an affiliate program which is great but it was almost i guess i don't know if that's a um chapter in the traction book but i guess we would call that engineering as marketing has was probably the biggest advantage that we had
0: yeah it's like product driven growth i'm not sure it's in traction either but it's it's great because it's free essentially you build in your product it exists forever and now you just get this free growth where you don't have to write blog posts you don't have to advertise you're just getting people recommending your product or teaching others about it just by using it and you know listening to your story it it reminds me of why i get so frustrated at, at people who launch something and it doesn't work and like a couple of weeks and they quit. Because so much of what led to your overall success over time are just these things that you learned on the job from selling and seeing what worked and talking to people. Like You probably had no idea in the very early days that one of the problems you were solving was just letting these fledgling podcasters look more professional, look like their heroes, look like Gary V. But once you realize that, you can start doing all sorts of specific stuff to help people get that feeling and solve that problem. And you're never going to uncover that unless you stick with your business and keep talking to people and keep trying things out.
1: Yeah, I couldn't imagine doing this and not being interested in other people. I think that's really what's driven us is we're just curious. We want to know like what makes podcasters tick. We, we talk to them, we chat with them and we ask them questions and we try to read between the lines and see what they really want. And it took a long time, a lot of conversations on intercom to kind of really distill down what people wanted. Because a lot of times people don't know what they want, but they'll get pretty close to telling you. So I, I think the best advice is you've got to have a certain level of empathy just to be able to put yourself in somebody's shoes when you're chatting with them and say, oh, you know, man, that sounds really tough. How, you know, how would you improve that? How do you want it to be? And just chat with them. And I think that's been a big event. We've always put customer support as a massive priority for us. We try to have very fast response times and we try to help people as fast as possible. And it builds trust with them so that then they'll tell you these things and you can get the real story after you've you know, chatted with somebody a couple of times. They'll, they'll tell you what their real dreams or you know, passions are. So yeah, having empathy and just being willing
0: to take the time to listen to people. Couldn't agree more. There's so much you learn from listening to what people say, and it kind of seems like it's going to be unproductive. You're like, well, I've got code to write, I've got features to build. Do I really just want to talk to people on the off chance that they tell me something useful? And a lot of times they won't tell you that much useful stuff. But here's the thing. If you authentically like the customers that you're serving, then you're going to want to talk to them anyway, because it's just fun to talk to people that you like. And then every now and then they're going to say some stuff that changes your mindset. So with ND Hackers, I... First, built the forum with this very utilitarian goal. I thought, hey, founders have problems; they need to ask questions, they need to get answers. So that's what the forum is for. Whereas, I've talked to so many indie hackers since then, and just learned how they're actually using it. And a lot of people were just like, hey, you know, I get tired when I'm working, or I'm bored at the bus stop, so I open Indie Hackers because I just want to learn something. You know, if I'm going to be distracted, I don't want to go on Instagram. I want to I want to be distracted in a useful way. And I would never know that if I didn't talk to people. And that changes. How I build the forum and what I what I want it to do, so can't agree more with what you're saying. I think founders should really think from the get go who do I actually like talking to and try to build a product for those kind of people
1: yeah, and I also don't want to sound like, oh, you have to go out and talk to a hundred people before you launch your product like that's definitely not the case. I- I think it's you just need to find a good balance. You also don't want to not launch your product for so long and just sit there and talk to people forever when you could have been getting actual feedback on your product. I think we did a good job of that early on where we just we put something out there, we get a little feedback, we talk to people, we take a break and while you know we build whatever we found and then we would launch it and then we would get feedback on that and it was it's kind of a cycle it's like almost every 3 weeks we feel like we kind of shifted our priority back and forth from hey let's figure out what people think about this to let's build it and launch it and you know go through all that process and support it so there has to be a balance on both sides too and make sure you're not you know falling on one side or the other too heavily
0: one of the cool things that i know about your business is that you've been working with contractors and i think your strategy is You're finding contractors who are pretty entrepreneurial themselves. A lot of them are indie hackers or would-be indie hackers. And so you're kind of giving them the opportunity to work part-time on something, finance their lifestyle, while they also start businesses on the side. How does that work and how do you find these people? Because they kind of seem like the ideal generalist early employees to help you out.
1: Early on, we realized that we wanted to try and avoid having employees just because of, you know, all the administrative headache that comes with that. And early on, we didn't have enough money to pay employees anyway. So we had to use contractors. And the first contractor that we had was Rob, who actually is now a partner in our business. We actually found him off Upwork. He had just graduated and was traveling Europe at the time and was just picking up some hours while he was uh, traveling. I think he was in Italy at the time. And we started working with him after a couple of months. He was very entrepreneurial as well. He had tried to start up and um, had some other ideas and he just did such great work that we were like, we need to get this guy on board before he comes up with some product and takes off on his own. That's when it clicked for us. It's like, oh, we really like these contractors that have other interests and in their other you know businesses that they're working on, but need the contract to pay the bills. Um, we also, in that case too, it's, you know, the hours that they're working are really important. They want to make sure that they keep that job so that they have that kind of security in their back pocket as they're, they're working on their own products. So, you know, we've done it a lot of different ways. We've found people from Upwork. We have found people just through LinkedIn searching around also our, you know, marketing the contractor that really handles a lot of our marketing who I also then brought for Wave and then brought him as a partner for Subtitle. So we have really tried to uh, bring in good people when we find them. He was just a local connection here in town. So I think it's hard to find great engineers because they're generally not like out You know, happy hours or like certain different events. But sales and marketing people are generally pretty easy to find around town. You know, if you live in a fairly decent sized city, and Charleston's not a big city at all, but we have a little bit of a startup community where you can go meet connections. And um, also, people that you meet through freelancing and past jobs are great to reach out to. So we've kind of done all those different things and had some success uh, finding, getting those right people in place.
0: I've had a similar story with Indie Hackers where. Some of the people we work with we found off Upwork, Rosie Sherry, our excellent community manager, is a founder herself, yeah, she's great, yeah, she was a guest on the podcast. She bootstrapped her community to like a million dollars in revenue, and now she's running the indie hackers community so it's super cool to be able to to work with people who are founders themselves because they understand kind of the breadth of skills that you have to have, and they're willing to do kind of any part of the job, not just like one specific thing, they're just kind of the the perfect early People to work with, and I, I've thought about building something into Indie Hackers itself to sort of allow Indie Hackers to hire each oh, other. Oh, I would love that.
1: I would love that. And I've actually posted on Indie Hackers. That would be a great way to find people because you know that they, you know if somebody's on Indie Hackers and they're working on side projects and stuff. You know they're motivated, and you know they're fairly generalist, which is really important, and that they're willing to learn on their own. That's the other thing about employees is we don't, you know, we don't have the ability to on-ramp somebody into a job and train them we need somebody that can jump in tomorrow and start working and learning so that's something else that is just great about that kind of indie hacker
0: mentality that i would really like that so what are your personal goals with all of this i mean at this point at least from the outside looking in it feels like you've made it It feels like you've accomplished a lot of your goals and as you said wave is way bigger than you ever thought it could be where do you want to be in a couple years
1: we've been spending a lot of time on this lately we, you know we've been working on wave for 3 years and we're really trying to figure out we have some ideas of different products that we could add on to wave or you know different big initiatives we could do to grow that business but we're realizing there's really four core partners through both products and we're just really realizing that we love that initial creative, just that starting and launching process. We really like it. That's what really motivates us. Of course, the money is great, but the money really is more just an indicator that it's working and it's worth working on. Now we we're already starting to get the itch and we're working on a few different concepts of some new products that we want to launch. So I think for the foreseeable future, we've, I think we've got a few more in us that we want to try and uh, a couple different products. We'll see how those go. Aside from that, it would, you know, like long-term goals, I think it would. I'm really inspired by a lot of these investment groups that have started popping up, like Tyler at Earnest Capital, and there's some other groups like SureSwift and SAS Group that are buying and investing in other bootstrap companies. But we got a couple. <laughs> we got to get a couple more wins to get to that get to that level. But so long-term, I, I think that would be a lot of fun. But uh, short-term, we really want to do try and do this uh, you know one or two more times. We just we're really motivated. For some reason, we just we just love
0: putting things out there and trying to make them work. I remember being a kid and reading about the most successful entrepreneurs and how they would make a lot of money, they'd be successful with their companies, and then they would just work more and keep doing it. And (laughs) I never understood it as a kid until I got older and started working on stuff and realized that it's actually just really fun to do it, especially once you get better at it and it starts working. And you realize how many different things you can build, uh, you realize how much of an impact you can have on others and how much fun it is to just kind of be in control of your own life and building, kind of whatever you want. You were able to do this almost your first time out of the gate. I mean, this is kind of like your first stint as an indie hacker. And you've already built several successful companies. A lot of people I talked to flounder for months or years without any success. What do you think brand new indie hackers can take away from your approach to things and your story that would help them succeed?
1: Well, first off, I feel like I floundered for a long time. So, don't feel alone if you feel like you're doing that. Oh, uh, it's definitely, you know, even there was a whole year before I left my job where I was, you know, working on stuff and thinking about concepts and products. So, there was this whole other period before even getting started that felt like part of the journey as well. So, I think like the, the first piece of advice I would get is entrepreneurship is much more of a journey than it is making one company work. Because even if you get that first one to work, if you really want to be an entrepreneur, you're probably going to keep doing it. So that should take some pressure off. Like the first one doesn't have to be perfect, as long as you keep a runway in front of you and don't quit your job and blow your savings, like I did. Then you can hopefully have mm-hmm. a couple more shots. So definitely, uh, you know, try and keep the pressure low and just keep working. Everybody's story is going to be a little bit different. You know, the things that I think have really helped us is getting a team involved, getting a team in place you solo founders out there like i am so impressed when somebody is able to create and bootstrap a saas product and sell it and market it and support it and do all of that all by themselves our partners and i we just could never imagine doing that so if you have been struggling for a while by yourself one idea would be to you know go find a co-founder that's another you know long process in itself to find the right partner for long term but it can be really worth it so getting the right team in place is really important and then just trying to move fast and our success has correlated with our ability to make decisions quickly. It's something we've gotten a lot better at over the years. So just moving fast, making decisions and trying to make good, quick reversible decisions is also good too. Like don't put all your eggs in one basket, like, you know, keep things moving along. I'm kind of getting off track a little bit, but those would definitely be the kind of the big picture items that, that I would advise people to do.
0: So keep your expectations low. Don't, blow through your savings, and also don't feel bad (laughs) if it's hard because it's it's hard for everybody. And if at all possible, work with a team of people that you can move fast and iterate together on ideas with. Barrett Hall, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story and your learnings. Hopefully I'll have you back on the podcast again at some point to talk about all these new ideas that you're excited to work on. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about Wave and Subtitle and whatever else it is that you're working on?
1: Yeah, if you want to check out the products, WAVE is uh, W A V V E dot CO, WAVE dot CO, and then subtitle is like subtitle with the Z, uh, subtitle dot com. And then we've created a new brand called LoFi Ventures, L O F I dot ventures, where we're going to be launching some products under that brand and we're doing some blogging there as well so a lot of the things that we talked about today some of my partners are writing blog posts as well about building mvps and financial modeling some of that good stuff so go find us at lo and then all of us are on twitter as well probably pretty easy to track down so yeah, come talk to us. We, uh, we would love to interact with some other people. We just all sit in our kitchens independently and work on these companies. <laughs> so anytime we get a break to talk to somebody about their business, it'd be a lot of fun.
0: So definitely uh, reach out to us. All right. Thanks so much, Baird. Thanks, Corlin. Listeners, if you enjoy the show, you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter. Every time there's a new episode out, I just try to send out my thoughts, my takeaways, my advice. And it's also your chance to reply to the email and tell me what you think about the show and the episode in particular. You can find the newsletter at ndhackers.com slash podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.